Last week we talked about the KISS principle, that principle that has come to us from the military world, uh, the world of engineering, that principle that is an acronym that stands for Keep It Simple Stupid. And I mentioned last week I don't like the word stupid, but I'm very, very fond of that principle. Keep it simple. And I'm glad we can translate that other ways, such as keep it simple and straightforward. The Gospel of Mark is a great example of an author who observes the KISS principle. Keep it simple and straightforward. The Gospel of Mark, in some ways, is the simplest of the Gospels. It's certainly not a simplistic Gospel. It's the shortest of the Gospels, it's the oldest of the Gospels, but every word is chosen and filled with tremendous spiritual import. But it is a Gospel that keeps it simple and straightforward. And that's why here in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, we, we see how quickly Mark gets down to business. In Mark's Gospel, there is no birth narrative such as we find in Matthew and Luke. In Mark's Gospel, there is no great theological prologue such as we find in the Gospel of John. You remember it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came and dwelt among us. Mark's Gospel just simply gets down to business. In Mark's Gospel, almost immediately, you see the adult Jesus showing up for His earthly ministry. In the Gospel of Mark, you see how Jesus begins that earthly adult ministry that He picked up when He was about 30 years old. What you see here in verse 9 of the first chapter is Jesus leaving His home there in Nazareth, there in the Galilee, and He makes His trek, according to Mark's Gospel, to the Jordan River, to find his cousin John, who is there in the Jordan River calling people back to God and performing a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So we pick the story up with Jesus leaving Nazareth, that village in the Galilee. He makes his way to Capernaum, the city that will become his base of ministry during his adult years. And then he turns south and he makes his way down the Jordan River Valley until he finds his cousin John there carrying out a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was a long journey in Jesus' day. It was a journey that would have taken at least 10 days, perhaps two weeks, as Jesus walked on foot. Every time I take a group to Israel, some of you in this room have been to this spot, there is a place there. Uh, near Capernaum, and is referred to as the Valley of the Wind and the Doves. And the Valley of the Wind and the Doves is just a trail, a path, through the hills that lie between Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. And we always go and visit that little piece of property, and it is just a simple piece of property. Today it's a cow pasture. Because we remember that ancient path that Jesus walked 
from his hometown of Nazareth to the city of Capernaum. And he would have walked that, that very path through the hills there in Galilee. So we go and we remember that this is some property that Jesus would have walked on as he made his way to begin his adult ministry, his earthly ministry. This is the path he would have walked between Nazareth and Capernaum. And every time I'm there, and it seems to really impact people that we spend time there on that little piece of land that we call the Valley of the Wind and the Doves. Every time I'm there, I, I remember this journey that Jesus made between Nazareth over to Capernaum, then south through the Jordan Valley till he found his cousin John. There across from the city of Jericho, carrying out that ministry of baptism. And I often wonder to myself, what was in Jesus' mind and heart as he made that journey, that 10-day, two-week journey to find his cousin John the baptizer? I'm sure that he walked and he reflected and that he prayed in anticipation of the beginning of his earthly ministry. You see, Jesus knew from the start that his whole earthly ministry, every moment of his earthly ministry, would be carried out and would be lived in the shadow of the cross. Jesus came knowing that he came to be the sacrificial lamb of God, to give himself for the sake of you, for the sake of me, for the sake of our sin. So I'm sure as Jesus is beginning His earthly ministry and He's spending those days walking to the Jordan River, He's thinking and He's praying. Oftentimes when I'm standing there uh, at the Valley of the Wind and Doves, I'm thinking about that 10-day, two-week journey that Jesus took to begin His ministry. There is a particular American folk hymn that comes to my mind. Jesus walked this lonesome valley. And I think about Jesus walking that lonesome valley, ten days, two weeks, thinking about what it was that would be ahead of Him in His ministry. And because Jesus walked that lonesome valley, we now can walk our lonesome valleys. Because Jesus did what He did for us, we are able to live life as trophies of the grace of God. In this world, Jesus walked this lonesome valley. He made His way through the valley of the wind and doves. He made His way to the city of Capernaum, which would become His home base. And then He headed south and made His way down through the Jordan River to find His cousin John. And there He submitted to baptism. And we all know, we, we read it in all the Gospels, that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So every time you hear that, you should ask the question, why then in the world did Jesus submit to that baptism? Jesus, the unblemished, sinless Lamb of God. Why did He submit to that baptism? You sang it a few moments ago in that hymn. He submitted to that baptism as the sinless one, because he was repenting for us. He was repenting with us. He was standing there in that water being baptized by his cousin John in solidarity with us. He was there in that line to be baptized by John the baptizer because of you and because of me. His whole life, his whole ministry is lived in the shadow of the cross. He came as a sacrifice for us. 
And we love the story of the baptism of Jesus. It is a fascinating story. And besides asking that important question, why was he baptized? And getting the answer, he was baptized because he's standing with us in that water. He's identifying with our sin at that point, not his own. We also see that as a beautiful picture of the Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't occur in the New Testament, but the concept sure is there of a Trinitarian God. And there as Jesus is being baptized, the Father speaks to the Son, and God the Holy Spirit descends as a dove and anoints Him for this unique ministry. And as soon as He's baptized, the text says, that same Holy Spirit compelled Jesus, drove Jesus into the wilderness where for 40 days and nights he fasted and he entered into a conflict with the enemy. Now we learn more about that conflict and the nature of that conflict in the extended discussions of the temptation in the wilderness that we find in Matthew and Luke's gospel, but Mark just gets down to business and straightway just lets you know he's there being tempted by the devil. He's, he's, there, he's there spending even more days in prayer and reflection, preparing for his earthly ministry, because he knows what it is he's being called to. I believe that during that period, Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to abandon his purpose, to abandon the unique ministry to which the Father had called him. And he's also there in the wilderness, and only Mark's Gospel tells us this, with the wild beast... Matthew doesn't tell us that. Luke doesn't tell us that. Mark tells us he's there with the wild beast. And because Mark's gospel is simple and straightforward, we need to pay attention to every word that Mark's gospel gives us. And we need to ask, why does Mark make sure and tell us he's with the wild beast? And we think we know why he wants us to know that Jesus is not only in conflict with the devil at this point, but he's there in conflict with the wild beast. Because we know to whom this gospel was originally written. This was the first gospel written. It was written in the 60s of the first century. It was written to the predominantly Gentile community there in Rome as they were undergoing the persecution from Caesar Nero. That terrible persecution in the mid-60s that would eventually take the life of Peter and the life of Paul. The Christians were in the midst of that persecution there in Rome. That was the first audience that received this gospel. And there in the midst of that persecution, those earliest Christians were being arrested and tortured by Nero and his people. And they were being sent to the amphitheater. Colosseum's not built yet, but they were being sent to the amphitheater where they were being tortured by having to do conflict with the wild beast. So the first people who read this gospel who were potentially possibly going through that same sort of trial, tribulation, and torture, they knew that Jesus knew what they were going through. Jesus was baptized for us. Jesus is there in the wilderness for us. You also see here in the text that Jesus was comforted by the angels. And after he's comforted by the angels, the text simply tells us, but please don't miss it in verse 14. It was after John the Baptist was arrested. 
that Jesus left the, left the region of Judea there in the Judean desert around the Jordan River where I think he had been doing ministry with John and he made his way back to the safety of the Galilee. For you see, it's not yet his time. He knew what he had come for. He knew what his time would entail. But it was not yet his time. So for his own safety, Jesus, when John gets arrested, that eventually leads to the death of John the Baptist, Jesus goes back up into the Galilee to do ministry out of the city of Capernaum. And Gospel of John, the Gospel of Mark here gives us a summary statement in verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God, and saying, and notice how the gospel is proclaimed by Jesus. Notice how the gospel is defined by Jesus. If I were to stop a lot of Christians in this contemporary age and say, what is the gospel? Um, if their eyes don't glaze over in confusion, they may look at me and say, the gospel is believe in Jesus and you go to heaven. And that's certainly true and that's certainly wonderful. That's not the way Jesus defined the gospel. Notice how Jesus defined the gospel. In verse 17, this is what he says to you. This is what he says to me. Jesus says, the good news of God, which is, the time is fulfilled. The time has come and the kingdom of God has come near. That's how Jesus defines the gospel. The G the Jesus form of the gospel is not that we just die and go to heaven one day. The Jesus form of the gospel, as wonderful as that is, is that heaven is going to come to earth. The kingdom of God is coming to earth. And that the kingdom of God will come to earth in fullness and completion one day when the kingdom comes here on earth and it is being done here on earth as it's right now being done in heaven. We pray for that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. That will come in fullness at some point. But right now the kingdom of God is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is just simply... The rule, the reign, the influence of God. And in Jesus Christ, that rule, that reign, that influence of God was breaking into human history. And the way that God chose to allow His rulership, His reign, His influence to break into human history was to first break in to human hearts. So the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has been fulfilled. And the way that the kingdom of God comes is we receive the kingdom of God. We enthrone Jesus as king in our lives and by enthroning Jesus as king of our lives, we begin to participate in the rule, the reign, the influence of God in this world. And because we allow Jesus to rule and reign in our hearts, we allow Jesus to rule and reign in our lives, and the Spirit of Jesus goes forth from us, and the kingdom of God begins to grow and flourish here on this earth. One of these days, Jesus will complete it. But it's already begun. We are participating in it. This place right here this morning is the place where heaven and earth meet in sacred worship where the kingdom of God is breaking in still yet more fully into this world. So the invitation of the gospel, according to Jesus, is the kingdom of God is near, at hand, fulfilled. 
And you can participate in it. Notice how he says we can participate in it. We have to repent. That's one of the first words of the gospel. We repent. We have to turn toward God. We have to receive the kingship of God in our lives. And we do that by turning away from our sin. We turn away from our sin. But we cannot stop there. That might just be remorse for our sin. We cannot just stop at turning away from our sin. We have to make a complete turn and we turn Godward. And all of our life should become Godward. That's what repentance is. So by repentance, we get to participate in God's work here in this world. And that work begins in our hearts. And then he says, you go forth after the repentance, living a life of believing in the gospel or just trusting the gospel. Trust that what God has said is true, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is true. Like Pastor Clark said a few moments ago, this is who you are now. This is your reality now. This is your identity now. So trust the gospel. Trust the gospel. This is the way Jesus defines the gospel. This is the way Jesus defines the gospel. And this is because Jesus gave himself for us so that all of this might be reality for us. Church, you need to understand that he did this for you and me. He made that lonesome journey for you and me. He got there in the water for you and me and was baptized by John. He went out into the desert and fought the devil and the wild beast for you and me. He was comforted by the angels for you and me. And he's brought the kingdom to this earth for you and me to participate in it. All of this points to the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. All of this points to the cross of Jesus Christ. You understand, or I hope that you understand, the primary focus of the Gospels is not the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus is wonderful, but ethically speaking, Jesus taught nothing new that other first century Jewish rabbis weren't saying about how we're to live this life. The new thing in Jesus Christ is what Jesus said according to who He is and what He accomplished because of who He is. All of Jesus' life is in the shadow of the cross. Not just those final three days, not just that final week, everything about Jesus, the crux, that means cross in Latin, the crux the central statement of the Christian faith is about the cross. You know, should you forget that, 
uh, in traditional worship, I, I think since I showed up, we have a creed in traditional worship every Sunday. Usually around uh, communion, we do the Nicene Creed. Uh, on typical Sundays such as today, we do the Apostles' Creed. You'll notice that that historic statement of our faith is in three paragraphs, is the way it was written. First paragraph is about God the Father, and you, you get a little bit about God the Father. The third paragraph is about God the Holy Spirit, and you, you get to see what all the Holy Spirit is creating here in this world. The middle paragraph, which is the largest paragraph, by the way, is about God the Son, Jesus Christ. But when you look at what the creed says about Jesus, hopefully you notice that it says that um, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. And then you should be startled by the next sentence. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. You say, whoa, 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 where's the whole ministry of Jesus at? Where's the teaching ministry of Jesus at? Well, you've got to assume it's there in the blank space between he was born of the Virgin Mary and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. But this is just the historic church saying again to us, the centrality of the work of Jesus is the cross. That is the gospel. One of the things I've done recently for my own Lenten discipline is I've gone back and reread uh, a wonderful book entitled The Cross of Christ, simple title, by John R.W. Stott. John R.W. Stott was a, a clergy in the Church of England, uh, has had a huge influence on a whole lot of us. Uh, and John R.W. Stott wrote that book, The Cross of Christ, in 1987. And I'm so very, very grateful that. Um, I bought it when it came out in 1987. I read that book um, when I was beginning my ministry over here at Montlou Avenue United Methodist Church. And I'm so glad that I, I, I read that book in 1987. And um, now that I've reread it again for a Lenten discipline, it, it reminds me how that book in so many ways helped set the trajectory, the path of my ministry for the past 30 plus years. Um, and I know that we got folks from, Mont from the old Montlou Avenue Methodist Church who watch us here on Sunday morning, and I owe so much to those wonderful people that used to make up the old Montlou Avenue United Methodist Church when I went there in uh, 1986, right before that book came out. Uh, uh, Tammy and I were so young. Um, somebody came to the parsonage and told my wife one time, we asked the bishop for a young pastor, but, but, but you're ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I was 24 at that time. I was so green. I knew so little. And those saints at Montlou Avenue Methodist Church, I know that they endured a lot of, of, of stuff from me, theological stuff from me. I'm sure they listened to me preach many Sundays and they thought to themselves, God bless his heart. Can he do any better than this? But they were wonderful people and we just love that church and we love the people there. Served them for five years. Uh, I told the 830 service, uh, one of my first memories of serving at Montlou Avenue Methodist Church, and this is for all you folks who have been in High Point for a while, Montlou Avenue Methodist Church was over there at what is called Five Points in High Point. And I think Five Points is not quite as rough and as dangerous today as it was when Tammy and I showed up, age 20 and 24, uh, as, as a new pastor of that church. Uh, but I know we were moving in, and the night we were moving in, I thought I could call Domino's Pizza, which was just down Montlou Avenue, on Main Street, I thought I could call Domino's Pizza and, 
in order of pizzas, we were unpacking boxes, and they, they, they informed me they don't deliver where I live at because it was so dangerous, and so many of their delivery men had been robbed. And that was my introduction to Montlou Avenue. And uh, the parsonage right there beside the church at Five Points had a remarkable ministry there in so many ways. But it was while I was there, I read John R. W. Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. And um, I know that we have some unity groups that are paying attention to that book, and I'm so grateful for that. It's, it's probably one of the best uh, modern discussions of the significance of the cross of Christ. And I know that over the last 30 years, as I... As I reflect on reading that book 30 years ago, and I reflect on 30 plus years of ministry, I'm, I am mindful that some of my colleagues in ministry think, or at least they act as if, or they speak as if, somehow they have moved on beyond the importance of the cross of Christ. It's that cross that's at the center of everything it means to be Christian. It's that cross as it defines who Jesus Christ is that's the center of everything that it means to be Christian. There's one sentence, um, two sentences I'll give you from the book by, by John R. W. Stott. In that book he says, Despite the great importance of Jesus' teaching, Jesus' example, and his works of compassion and power, none of these was central to his mission. What dominated Jesus' mind was not his living, but the giving of his life. We are in the Lenten season. We're spending 40 days plus our Sundays making a journey to Holy Week, making a journey back to the cross. My prayer for each one of us, friends, is that we will remember who we are, we'll remember the centrality of the cross, we'll remember what the cross has accomplished for us, and we will fall in love all over again with the crucified one. May we never live long enough to get over our love for the crucified one.